0: Man it's so great to see all of you here today. I think this might just looking at it, it's probably the fullest service we've had since we came back from the COVID uh, thing. And so, you know, it's it's fantastic. You know, this whole social distancing thing, it's it's it's, uh, it's a challenge. You know, but man, I'm so glad to see you guys here. And you know, just work with us, bear with us. We adjust and shift. You know, I've tried to be on. on this is a very fluid situation still. So but I just can't tell you how pleased I am to see all of you. And if you're here for the very first time, man, welcome. We are wrapping up today our old school series that we've been in now for seven weeks. And man, I just really hope that this series has helped you grow in your knowledge of God's word. I hope that it's (coughs) challenged you perhaps to, you know, examine your own life and to like, Lord, is my faith like the, the ones we're studying about in the old Testament there? And You know, I hope that it's challenged you to take on some of these attributes that we've been trying to to describe in this series. Like when we talked about Daniel and how, you know, Daniel was like, my faith is anchored in conviction and nothing's going to move me off of that. Is our faith like that? You know, where Daniel as well, when all the laws around him changed, but he's like, listen, my faith is already public. Everybody knows what I'm about. I'm not changing. My convictions are what I believe just because... The world around me is changing how about when we studied Shadrach Meshach and Abednego how they just declared we're going to obey God not man's expectations we're not going to blend in to this world around us you know how about when we studied about Esther's life who she discovered no God had a plan God's in control and she's a part of it remember for such a time as this do we see ourselves the same way How about Ezra? We learned about him last week, and we saw how his old school faith came out when he was appalled by the sin of the people and and was just like, we need to get humble before God. We need to repent, and we need to take some steps to ensure that we don't get into this problem again. I mean, these are all people who exhibit what I call and what I've been referring to as an old school faith. I mean, when you strip everything away, what you have left is just this No bells or whistles, it's just classic, it's proven, it stands the test of time, it's tried and true, it will weather any storm, that kind of faith. It's that kind of faith that we're aiming for today. I say it like this for us as the church, really, when it comes down to it, what's going to last, what's going to sustain you? It is being a Bible-believing, Christ-centered follower. That's what it is. Just boil it, That's, that's old school. Now, each of these examples that we've been studying about over the last seven weeks, they come from a section of the Old Testament known as the Babylonian captivity, or you might expand that and just call it the years of the exile. That's where we've been spending this time. And it's important to really capture the context, so I kind of share it with you every sermon. You know, God had a plan for his people. He was going to create a holy nation, and this holy nation was going to be like like the the example to the, the rest of the world. Of what holiness looks like what a godly people looks like but what's the problem the Israelites had a really hard time year after year keeping their eyes on God and it's 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 a catalog for us quite nicely in the Old Testament that they struggle with idol worship they struggled with you know idol all kinds of stuff disobedience right and left doing things that God didn't want them to eventually God said I've had enough I've had enough of this uh, disobedience, I've had enough of this ungodliness, I'm pouring all of me into you, but there's nothing in return. And so we read that God allowed them to be punished for a season, to try to bring them back into a right relationship. So the Babylonians came in and conquered the Israelites. They destroyed Jerusalem and they, they tore up the temple of God, their beloved temple. But as we've seen in this series... God was still in control during that time. He has a plan. He was working his plan. We, we know that the Israelites were in captivity for 70 years. And that's where we meet Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But at the end of that 70 years, God inspired the king to issue a decree that any of the Jews who were living in exile, if they wanted to go back home to the promised land, Jerusalem, that whole area, he, he would allow them to go. And so about 50,000 of the Jews decided to leave um, the Babylon or the, we know the government, the Persian government and travel the 700 plus miles back to Jerusalem and that's what they did. And that's where we meet Jerobabal and Joshua and others that we saw in more examples of old school faith. They rebuild the temple. It takes them about 20 years but they get it done. But we know a lot of the Jews stayed behind in the land of exile and that's where we meet Esther. That's where she was an orphan girl who was elevated and becomes the queen of Persia. And so she's queen of all the people that stays behind. Years later, we learn about Ezra, who leads a group back to Jerusalem, and he's so excited to get there. Do you remember? He's like a kid in a candy store. Can't wait. What's he find when he gets there? The Israelites are embroiled in sinful behavior, and he has to clean house. Today we're coming to um, the next person in this history. It is Nehemiah. And I want you to turn your Bibles to the book of Nehemiah. And I'm going to give you a moment to turn there. If you were here last week, um, we were in the book of Ezra. And if you remember where Ezra was, Nehemiah is the very next book in the Bible. In fact, Ezra and Nehemiah go together. They were meant to be read together. Nehemiah picks up right where Ezra leaves off. But that's where we are. And where you're finding that, I just want to point out to you, that here we have this incredible history that spans about 140, 150 years here that we're talking about. And all through it, we see what? We see God's hand on every moment. God positioning people, working his plan right where he wants them to be at just the right time. And you're going to see that again today with Nehemiah. Have you found Nehemiah? We're, gonna, we're not going to be reading the whole book of Nehemiah today, so I'm going to challenge you to, after we're done here, to go back and, and read the whole book of Nehemiah. It won't take you that long, especially if you're preparing for your life group this week. You need to read the whole book uh, of Nehemiah because it is fascinating. It is one of those books of the Bible that I call a page-turner. I mean, you're going to want to find out what happens next if you've never read it. So here now, Nehemiah, here we are. It's the year. It's about 445 B.C., and he is leading a group of exiles back to Jerusalem, but he's not just their tour guide. He's not just, you know, leading in where they're supposed to go. No, no, no. God has put something on Nehemiah's heart to go and do and build, and let's read about it. Starting in Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1, it says this. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa. Now, this is, this is Nehemiah speaking first person here. Han and I, one of my brothers came from Judah with some other men. In, in other words, what he's referring to is somebody he knows has been in Jerusalem and they have traveled the 700 plus miles back to where he lives. So he's getting his kind of a eyewitness account of what it's like. And he goes, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. And when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Now we're going to unpack this a little bit, but I need to answer two questions before we go any further. The first question is this, who in the world is Nehemiah? And the second question is, why does he care about the walls of Jerusalem? Two very important questions. First of all, Nehemiah is an Israelite. He's a Jewish person. He grew up in exile. In other words, like Ezra last week, his family stayed behind after the captivity ended, and they just did life in Persia. They did not go back to the promised land. So Nehemiah grows up there Now, not only that, he becomes a very important person in the government. He is the cupbearer for the king. I'm not going to get into all that, but just know this. He works closely with the king. He's an advisor. He has a very important role. And again, I just want to point out, all throughout this history that we've been talking about, God continues to place his people in the right place at the right time. Friends, I want you to know something, too. God's got you in the right place at the right time for such a time as this. And I see this all over the place in Scripture. So so he's got an important job. He actually has access to the king. Now, why does he care so much about these walls? Well, see, here's the thing. Jerusalem was ransacked in the year 586 B.C. Nehemiah hears this news in the year around 445 B.C. And if you're good at math, you know, that's like 140-something years uh, between those two times. In other words, it's not brand new information that the walls of Jerusalem are in bad shape. This is not the first time Nehemiah has heard this. So why does it affect him so sharply now? Well, you see, he has a, a friend or a brother comes and gives him eyewitness accounts. And I think what's happening is that Nehemiah has always known, but now he is going from I know to I know. And there's a big difference between I know here in my mind and I feel it here in my heart. How many of you know that sometimes the longest journey anybody will take in life goes from the I know to the I know? You know, uh, how many remember in 2011, a pretty nasty tornado tore through Joplin, Missouri? Do you guys remember that? Nasty F5 tornado. I used to live in Joplin. I went to Bible college in Joplin. I was there for four years. And so, very familiar. Joplin has a special place in my heart. I've got family that lives in Joplin. And so the day that that tornado happened, I was actually living in Kansas City, Missouri. I was a pastor at a church up there. And um, I got a phone call from somebody, and they just said, Hey, Joe, we heard that there was a tornado in Joplin. Everybody good down there? And I'm like, Yeah, I guess. Thanks. If you lived in the Midwest, if you've been in Kansas, Missouri, Oklahoma much, I mean, you hear tornadoes all the time. I mean, tornado sirens go off all the time if you've ever lived. I've lived in Oklahoma and Missouri. I, it wasn't like anything that hit me strong. My brother calls me. My brother lives in Neosho, Missouri, just south of Joplin, and he called me. He goes, hey, Joe, just want to let you know, tornado came through here, but we're fine. Just didn't want you to worry about us. Thank oh, thanks. Cool, I'm glad, thanks. Had a few more calls like that, and I was like, yeah, I know, a tornado, tornado hit Joplin. And then I turned on the news. And all of a sudden, it went from I know to I know. Two days later, my wife and I drove a trailer full of water and diapers and blankets and stuff that our church and a lot of churches there collected. We drove it to Joplin, dropped it off, and we drove the streets streets that we are so familiar with. We didn't recognize any of it. And then I went to see my sister who lives in Joplin, and I listened to her story of the events of that day. She and her family were hunkered down in their basement, and the tornado was barreling down right on their house. You see, my sister lives right off Twentieth Street, if you're familiar. The tornado gets three blocks from her street for reasons, I don't know why, it came off the ground, went over her house, put back down, and kept going in its path of destruction. And you drive around her house, everything within a little, you know, her street and the next one over, but everything outside of that, leveled, I mean, not leveled, gone, missing. She's telling me this, and I know it, (laughs) but now I feel it. I went from the I know to the I know, and I believe this is what's happening to Nehemiah. He's always known about the walls in Jerusalem. They weren't in good shape. They were broken and burned down. But when his friend came and told him this eyewitness account, I think Nehemiah felt it in a whole new way. He went from the I know to the I feel, I know to the I know. And I would suspect that something else is happening in Nehemiah's life about this same time. I think that maybe God had already begun to stir him a little. I think God had already caused his heart to soften. I think God was already moving him in certain ways. And so things were starting to affect him differently. And when he heard about this wall, it really impacted him. And maybe some of you here today are experiencing the exact same phenomenon. Maybe you have believed in God your whole life. And what you believe about the Lord today hasn't really changed all these years. But there is something different. Things are starting to bother you that never used to bother you before. There is some stuff right now that are of great interest to you that you've never really cared much about before. And it's not that you believe any differently but you sense it. Something is changing in your heart. You are more aware of something than you had before. Something in your life right now is going from the I know to the I know. And it makes you wonder, doesn't it? Is God stirring in you something? Is God preparing you for the next chapter of your life? And I think this is what's happening with Nehemiah. I think God is stirring him. And when he hears this news, what's the Bible say? He weeps for days. He mourns. There's this sense of great sadness that comes over him. He fasts. He's not eating. He's focused on God. He prays. Now, it's it's a really remarkable aspect of this story that we could spend a lot more time on. But I'm going to fast forward just a little bit. Nehemiah gets stirred up over these walls. This goes on for several months. And he eventually goes to the king and he asks for permission to have a leave of absence. He's like, i got to go do something. And the king gives him his blessing. And as you read through the next few chapters, we learn that Nehemiah heads back this 700 miles plus back to Jerusalem, leads a group of people there. He's going to organize a whole group of people. He's going to have to get them to all work towards something He's going to have to deal with the constant threat of these outside invaders that are trying to shut down the work. I mean, the adversity that Nehemiah has to deal with once he gets to Jerusalem is intense. But you know what happens as you keep reading the book of Nehemiah? We learn that God's people came together, and in 52 days, they rebuild and refurbish all the walls of Jerusalem. I don't know anything that happens in 52 days. I mean, we spend 52 days to try to decide if we want to spend 52 more days thinking about something. They built, rebuilt these walls in 52 days. They didn't have cranes, they didn't have bulldozers, they didn't have power tools, nothing. And I just look at that, and and when you read it, you're going to be inspired. That when the people of God come around a vision of God, there's no stopping what's going to happen. It's true. When God's people come around God's vision in unity, there is no stopping what the God's people can do. And so they build this wall, they get it done in 52 days and it's absolutely an amazing feat. Now, I want you to jump to chapter eight. I'm gonna let you read those first seven chapters on your own. Those first seven chapters are all about Nehemiah's journey to get the walls rebuilt and they are awesome. But now the walls are built, now they gotta focus on what happens inside those walls. And in chapter 8, verse 1, here's what the people of God did. All the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses. And for our purposes today, to keep it simple, they asked him to bring out the Bible, okay? So this is Ezra, the same Ezra from last week that we learned about. He's there. And they say, Ezra, go get the Bible. Go get the scrolls and bring them out. Look at verse 2. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law, the the assembly, the the Bible, if you will, before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from, don't miss this part, from daybreak until noon. He stands up to read from the Bible in front of thousands of people. From the earliest moments of the day where there was enough sunlight to read the scrolls until noon. And he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of all the men and women, others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the Bible being read. I find that remarkable. Because I don't know if we could ever reproduce this where a group of Christians would come together and listen to the Bible being read from the earliest moments of the day until lunch. I find this re- remarkable. But these people, as you read this account, they are like soaking it up. They are so just receiving this. It's like the edge of their seats listening. Nobody's talking. They're hanging on every single word. A lot like church when I'm preaching. That's how you guys are. Hanging on, no, I'm okay. I'm, I'm joking, I'm joking. They are soaking it up. They are engaged. They can't get enough. Have you ever experienced one of those seasons in your life? I mean, where you can't put the Bible down. You're not going to miss church ever. I mean, you just can't get enough of this. You are soaking it up. I mean, it is, I mean it's all you can do to contain this massive amount of information. Have you, have you ever experienced one of those seasons? That's, that's them. Look at verse 5. Ezra opened up the Bible. And all the people could see him because he was standing above him. So some kind of platform, something where he was elevated. And he opened it, and the people stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen! Amen! And they bowed down, and they worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. These are people who are overwhelmed by the moment They've heard the word of God. It drives them to their knees in a spirit of repentance. And they shout, amen, amen. And that word just means, yes, I agree. So be it. Say it again. We agree. Did you know that it's perfectly fine to say amen in church? Did you know that? Because the, I guess so. Because uh, the word of God is something that needs to be responded to. You know, a few years ago, back when I was still living in Kansas City, I was given an invitation to come be a guest preacher at another church in our city, and uh, this church was 100% African American, and I've never, had, I've never preached at a church that was 100% African American before, and I, let me just say this, that, um, and I hate to use this word, but our tradition is not known as being a wild bunch. Is that a nice way of saying it? When we gather for worship, it's calm. You hear some hands go up, but, you know, there's no dancing in the aisle. There's no tambourines. There, I mean, that's, we're, we're pretty calm, really, when it comes to worship. At this church, it was alive And I mean, it was lively and it was loud and it was energetic and I mean, it was, people were dancing and it was, I mean, I'm just going to be honest with you, it was an amazing experience to be a part of and it's not something that I was used to. And we had this amazing worship service and, and it was loud. Let me tell you, if you think our worship service ever gets loud, it's nothing compared to where I was that day. It was loud. It was awesome. And then it was my turn to preach. So I come up to the stage and... And I, I, start to, I start with prayer. And I said, please bow your heads and let's pray together. And I started the prayer. Lord, thank you for this day. And, and I just thank you we could be here. And somebody over here goes, amen, really loud. I'm like. And I continue to pray. And somebody over here goes, yes, Lord, yes, 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 yes. yes. I continued to pray some more, and um, somebody some, some verbal uh, agreement. Yes, I that's what I think. And then somewhere in the prayer, the the person who had been on the organ was sitting right here, and they hopped up on the organ. And I said, "And thank you, Lord." And I got a dun dun. I've never had a musical accompaniment to prayer before, and I kept praying and dun 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 dun. And I kept praying, and then when I said in Jesus' name, Amen, I got one of these. <laughs> yeah. It was—I'm—I'm I'm gonna tell you—it was awesome. And then the organ player sat down, and I started preaching, and I—I preached the same way back then as I preach today, and just started preaching, and—and and again, it was like, <laughs> Amen. Hey, I was getting interrupted a lot. Yes, yes, preach more. And then the organ player—he was during my prayer, hop back up there and started playing again. And I was like, and God said, go into all the world. Da, da, da. Preach the word. Da, 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 da. And we actually got into a rhythm. It was very cool. And I, and it was like, Jesus said for God, so love the world. I'm moonwalking across the stage back and forth. No, I didn't do I'm kidding. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't moonwalk maybe spun. I didn't moonwalk though. It was, I I, actually, it was, it was truly awesome. And, and they taught me some things that day and, and truly wonderful church. And, uh, yes, wonderful church. Um, I say all that just to say that it's okay to say amen, um, in church. And, um, and these Israelites, they hear the word of God read to them, and it is such an overwhelming experience that they respond, amen, make it so, yes, we agree, and, 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 and we find out that, that as you read more, people are weeping, and there's these tears coming down people's cheeks, and it turns into full-blown sobbing. Why are they having this kind of response to the reading of God's word? It's because they were hearing God's word and in that they were experiencing God's love and they were learning about God's desire to be their God and they're hearing about his promises and learning again about his plan to get them back and to rescue them from their sinful ways. And it was undoubtedly a very overwhelming experience that was filled with both regret and joy at the same time, and it dropped them to their knees in worship. And sometimes I wonder, as I read things like this, are we missing the mark somewhere when we gather as a church, when I see this kind of response? They were driven to their knees by conviction of God's word. And I want to say this to you, church, that it's the word of God that drives life change in people's hearts. And that's why I'm so passionate and talk about it all the time about not watering down God's word as so many preachers today are so accustomed to doing. We don't need to adjust the Bible. We don't need to reinterpret it or re-explain it in any way just so that it will somehow gel with the, whatever modern day and cultural norms are that we experience. The word of God will always be at odds with our culture Because the message of God's word is countercultural to the world that we live in today. And so my challenge to us and what I want our church to be, is simply to let the word of God speak like it has for generations, and just let God do His work through His word. That's what we need to do. Now these Israelites, they were moved deeply by God's word. I think it's the same emotion, it's the same feeling that, that comes to us today when we finally understand. God's word and what it's all about and God's master plan and all that he's done to win our hearts. To understand that we are deeply loved by God and God will go to all kinds of lengths. And he did to, to save us. And when we finally get that message, friends, it's overwhelming. So by the time you get to the end of chapter 8 of Nehemiah, we kind of get this sense when you read it. That the Israelites are beginning to get their spiritual house in order. And where did it start? It started with God's word. And then we come to chapter 9. Can you flip over one more page? Chapter 9. Here's what happens next. On the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together, fasting and wearing sackcloth and having dust on their heads. That's just a sign of regret, remorse. We're sorry. That's what they're doing. Those of the Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners they stood in their places and confessed their sins and the wickedness of their fathers. They stood where they were and read from the, the Bible of the Lord for, of God for a quarter of the day. And they spent another quarter in confession and in worshiping the Lord their God. This is all part of them bringing their spiritual house in order. You see what's going on there in Jerusalem is that they just built these impressive walls. These will these walls still have that new wall smell to them. But inside, it's a different story. Inside, these people are still quite broken and they're not yet what God wants them to be. From the outside, all the nations were looking at them going, "This is quite impressive." But in their heart they knew that their walk with God had not been. Uh, What was really happening on the inside did not match these new walls on the outside. Boy, I tell you, I think there's a real parallel here for our lives today. You know, what people see in your life and what they see from the outside, we do everything we can to make that quite impressive, don't we? But oftentimes, isn't that just a smoke screen, if you will, of what's really going on on the inside? Isn't it true that your outside can be the most impressive thing that anybody ever saw, but your inside can be all broken up and lost? And I wonder if that describes you today. I wonder if that describes why you might be here today. You've worked your whole life on the outside. Maybe it's time God's stirring in you, like He did with the Israelites. It's time to work on the inside. What did that look like? Well, they were broken over their behavior, that's what the Word of God says. They were broken over the hurt they'd caused with the relation for God to in response to that it's our same response today they confessed their sins, they got humble before God, and then they committed to obeying God, moving forward. It's, it's a remarkable transformation of a group of people. When they did that, when they confessed their sins and humbled themselves before God and committed to live differently, take on what we would call today a new life, it's remarkable how their spiritual house started to reflect these beautiful new walls that they now have in their city. Boy, I see a real parallel, friends, that when your spiritual house starts to take shape, then all kinds of things start to change, and the people on the outside can't help but notice What Israel does over the next couple chapters is they start to make some promises. They identified where they were sinning. They identified all the things that needed to change. And they actually write them down and declare before God that these things are going to change. Let me show you quickly what they are. Jump over to chapter 10. Nehemiah 10.29 says, They all joined their brothers and nobles and they bound themselves with a curse and an oath to follow the law of God. Or we might just say the teachings of the Bible. Through Moses, the servant of God, and to obey carefully all the commands, regulations, and decrees of the Lord your God. I try to point out to you every time I come across a passage of Scripture that just bleeds this truth, that God cares more about where you're going than where you've been. Have you heard me say that once or twice? This is one of those. Listen, if, if if they didn't think that they didn't have any hope or future or that God was somehow done with them, we wouldn't be reading this part. No, they knew that there was gonna be forgiveness and restoration and, and God is pointing them to a new future. This is the epitome of God cares more about where I'm going than all the junk I've been involved with. And that's true for your life too. Look at verse 30. They say, we promise... Not to give our daughters in marriage to the peoples around us or to take their daughters for our sons. We covered this last week. They're declaring this and we're gonna do. In other words, what they're saying is we will be the holy nation you've called us to be. We will not mix it up with all these other nations. We will be your holy people. This is their call to be holy. It's the same thing that we do when we follow Christ and we become a new creation. The New Testament says the old is gone the new has come, and I that new part is going to be different. It's going to be set apart. That new part is where the Bible describes you as a foreigner or an alien in this world. You're just a passer-through now because your citizenship is in heaven. That's what they're experiencing. Verse 31, when the neighboring peoples bring merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath... We're not going to buy from them on the Sabbath. This goes back to the Old Testament law. There were some really strict rules about the Sabbath day. Do you remember the fourth commandment of the ten? Keep the Sabbath day holy. They hadn't been doing that. And what they've been doing is they've been buying and selling and trading when the Sabbath day was meant to be a day of rest and a day of worship. And they're saying this now. Okay, God, now we've seen the light. And we're not going to do all that stuff on the Sabbath. We're going to make it about you. So when all these people show up at our gates with their carts full of all this good stuff... And they're like, we've got a special Sabbath day sale going on. You know, buy one, get one free. Blue light special down here in the valley. Whenever they say anything like that, we're going to say no. That's pretty remarkable in my mind. The last part of verse 31. Every seventh year, here's what we're going to do. We're going to forego work in the land and we'll cancel all debts. You see, you got to go back to the Old Testament, the law to figure this one out. But God had actually put some guidelines in place, some rules, so that people didn't carry on debts and be indebted to one another year after year after year. So every seventh year, you had to forgive all your debts. Every seventh year, you didn't work the land. You gave the land a, day, uh, a year of rest. I tell you, there, there's more to this day of rest thing than meets the eye, and we'll get into that one day. Then look at Verse 32. We assume the responsibility for carrying out the commands to give a third of a shekel each year for the service of the house of God. For the bread set out on the table for regular grain offerings and burnt offerings. And for the offerings on the Sabbath, the new moon festivals, the appointed feast, For all the holy offerings, for sin offerings, to make atonement of Israel. And for all the duties of the house of God, there's a lot to unpack here that we're not going to. Again, this goes back into the Old Testament law, if you will, and all the things God had them do to set apart a holy nation. Basically, they're saying, we will get back to that. It goes on for another six verses, and they'll detail how they're going to become tithers and generous people, and they're going to give joyfully and cheerfully to the Lord, and, and they unpack it before God. This is what we're going to do. In verse 39, it says this, we will not neglect the house of God. They're referring to the temple and they're referring to all the things that it takes to maintain the temple which points glory and honor back to God and this is, we, we will be all about it moving forward. All in all, they've listed out everything that they intend to change so they can walk in full obedience to God. These are all the things that need to change so that their spiritual house Matches up to now the physical house that God has given them. There's a real parallel in our own lives to what we're seeing here in Scripture. They had to get their house in order, and so that's what they did. And I have a question for you today What do you need to change today so that your spiritual house can be in order? If you were gonna take an inventory of your life, if you were gonna sit down and, and as a response to scripture or maybe as a response to what we're reading in Nehemiah and you say, I want that kind of action in my life, I want that kind of holiness and obedience and you were to take an inventory of your life, what are the things that you would list down just like the Israelites did that's gonna to have to change so that you can walk in obedience with your heavenly father? And I will challenge you, if you're a husband, If you're a father here today, you are the leader of your family. What do you need to commit to God for your spiritual house and the people that God has put in your care? What do you need to do today for that spiritual house to come into order before God? If you were to write it out, what would it say? Would it say something like this? That this family... We'll commit to meeting together with other believers for worship every week, and we are going to protect it as time that is holy unto God. In short, my family is going to be in church. Would that be on the list? That's going to become the most important important time of our week together. Would this be on it? This family is going to give back to God what he has already given to us, what he's been so generous with us. We will cheerfully give from our first fruits, not ever from the leftovers. Would would that be on the list? How about this one? This family will separate from all modern day idols. Those things that want to compete for our allegiance and our commitment and our time with our heavenly father. How about this? This family will walk by faith and model integrity in a world that seriously is lacking it. If you had to write down and commit to it, what you would need to take, what it would take to get your spiritual house in order, what would you write down? Well, when I think about old school faith and all that we've been studying about, and I think about Nehemiah. I think old f- school faith comes out of a person in this way. Your heart will break over the things that breaks God's heart. Just like Nehemiah. Broke it, tore him up. But what else does it do? I think an old school faith, somebody th- with that, is so aware and concerned over your spiritual house. You will keep your spiritual house in order. You'll be more concerned than what happens in your heart and your soul than what people see or think about what you have or where you live or any of the things that are important to the world but are absolutely not important to God. That's old school. And with that, we're going to bring our old school series to a close. Can I pray for you? Dear Gracious Heavenly Father, as we bring this series to conclusion, Lord, I want to thank you, as I always do, for your holy word. And that, Lord, our response to it will never be one of apathy or indifference. But that, Lord, we will see your word as the inspired words of our Savior who bled and died for our sins. That, Lord, these scriptures are God-breathed, every last word of it, Lord. And that's your instructions to us so that we know how to get along in this life in a way that is holy unto you. So Lord, I thank you for your scriptures. I thank you for the, what we have learned from Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and Jerobabble and Joshua and Esther and Mordecai and Ezra and Nehemiah, these great men and women of faith. And may they inspire us to have that same kind of old school when everything else is stripped away our Bible-believing, Christ-centered faith. Lord, I pray you help us in the moment know when our faith is being tested. Lord, give us the strength to stand up under it. Lord, may we be a church so unified and driven along by your purposes and your mission that you would look at us, the New Life Christian Church family, and, and you would say, now there is a church they're God's people. Those are my people. They love me. They honor me. Oh, far from perfect. But they understand I care more about where they're going than where they've been. And they're striving to live for me. And I, I pray, Lord, that would be how you see us. Lord, make us an effective church. Help us be unified in all of our ways. And Lord, when you put something big in front of us, we will rally behind and around your vision, knowing that you will make it successful. In Jesus' name, amen.